In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Like many of you, I find myself standing firmly in the Episcopal tradition, not because of, but very much in spite of my early religious training. While my religious heritage gave me things that I deeply love and value, like a love and appreciation for communion and scripture and baptism, I know that I am not alone in the dis-ease that comes with old patterns. The stories that I have heard about how terribly people have been treated in the name of Christianity should chill us all to the bone. Some of them I have experienced myself and some I have not. To name a few, the silencing of women, the abuse of scripture to uphold power in relationships, the exclusion, oppression, and enslavement of people made in the very image of God, just to name a few. And over the course of his, the history of Christianity, we see time and time again how sin creeps in. How the very systems meant to protect and shape humanity work to exclude people at best and wage a holy war at worst. In tragic way, abuses done in the name of our sacred text and faith are not in any way new. Perhaps stories of religious and spiritual abuse resonate with you or people you know, or maybe, maybe they don't. But I trust that they evoke compassion. Part of my role here at Christ Church is as your associate rector, but also as campus minister. And it's one of my great joys of this vocation. If you have not spent time or talked with someone in the 18 to 24 year old age range recently, let me tell you that they without fault give me hope for the future of the church. They do not give me hope for the future of the church because they're going to be the solution to all of our problems or the decline in church attendance that the church sees nationally. They give me hope because they are not afraid to question unabashedly. There is no hesitance when reading scripture to question why certain things come up and others do not, or why this passage is used to hurt others while it protects, protects others. Unfortunately, many of these young people already have religious scars even at their young age. Some of them saying that this is the first time that they have ever felt safe in a church. An ever-present part of our conversations are about what it means to call ourselves Christians when so many horrific things have been and are being done in the name of Christianity. It's their wrestling with faith 
that has inspired me to turn a curiosity-oriented lens at the things that we maybe take for granted, especially for those of us who have been Christians longer than they've been alive. And perhaps there's no better time to do this sort of radical questioning than when the Paschal candle is lit and alleluias are still on our tongue. And that's why all of our texts for this Sunday seem to me to be begging to be opened, to be inspected with this lens rather than passed over with a simple and easy Easter joy. And to be honest, perhaps I see that in all of these texts from the Acts of the Apostles to 1 Peter to John is because I've seen all of these texts, every single one used to aid in the oppression, suppression, and exclusion of others. Our Acts lesson, lesson describes this radical early Christian community built upon the foundational tenet that the most important thing we do is that we gather together and eat. But I've seen it used as a rationale to support a detrimental form of evangelism known as proselytizing, which forces people who do not believe correctly out to cut them out of our lives so that they could be saved. I've heard this passage from 1 Peter from a pulpit so many times in support of demanding that women in abusive relationships stay with their abuser because divorce is not sanctioned by the church. I've heard it so many times that it completely overshadows that what is being recounted in 1 Peter is Christ's sacrifice, not just to endure pain, but to be so committed and convicted by this sweeping form of love that he was willing to endure state-sanctioned torture and death. And the beauty of John's passage in the gospel articulating this intimate and tender sense of belonging that one can find in God, even with all the harm that the world wishes for us, is so often consumed by the way this passage and ones like it have been used to degrade our Jewish and Islamic siblings as thieves in the night. Maybe you don't hear these passages as negatively as I do. I hope not. But I wonder if the key for breaking the bonds of this religious burden that I carry, and maybe you do as well, is what I've learned from those college students. This unabashed, unafraid questioning. Why are these passages grouped together? Someone sat down and made our lectionary, our cycle of three years, and put these passages together. What unites them? Why do we hear them all together on this same Sunday? And I wonder if the key might just be the fourth passage 
read for today. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the most well-known, arguably, passage of Scripture. Many of us hearing it at funerals and planning to have it read or sung or chanted at our own funeral as well. For many people of faith, it is vital to understand what it means to be a person of faith. It's tender and beautiful, but I wonder why it's paired with all of these scriptures that, at least to my ears, hit quite harshly. And then I remember that our holy book, our Bible, our sacred text is not one book that we pull off the shelves, but really contains a whole library of different genres and styles and areas of history. What we hear today is a dramatic retelling of Christ's ministry in John. And then we hear a historical count of the early church in Acts. And then a small letter to a group of people in 1 Peter. And of course, we hear the poetry of Psalm 23. For today, at least, it is Psalm 23 that grounds me. It is Psalm 23 that grounds me much like many of the poems that I have come to love. We are, of course, an Easter people. And in this Easter season, we ought to cling to that Easter hope. But as Bishop White mentioned in his sermon last week, this Easter hope, this Easter truth, can feel impossible in our world. And even the unrelenting hope of the resurrected Christ in the face that all we hear and know and experience begins to feel faint. The truth of that Easter hope, though, is that it truly has the power to change the world. Even when it feels impossible, we have the power to change the world. Because there is nothing in this world that we are so powerful as the love to which we are called. Because the truth of how God works in this world is that the only way the only way forward, it's not easy, it's not simple, as much as we want it to be, it's love. That the love and belonging that is found in and for God's people and God's peace can ignite even the tiniest ember of hope. And this is the good news for today on this fourth Sunday of Eastertide. The good news is that God is restoring us even when we feel weak. Like the psalmist said all those years ago, he restores my soul. 
God restores my weary, belabored, tired soul. God restores us, not for our own benefit, but so that we might be able to love. The good news is that God empowers us to be an Easter people in a world that's stuck in Holy Saturday. And it's this comfort from Psalm 23 that empowers us to live into that Easter joy. All because we know that God restores our soul so that we might love as we have been loved.